It is such a beautiful day here and to be able to continue to worship. And I am so thankful um, for this season as, as we've looked at the words of Christ and we've just gleaned from his wisdom. And as we looked at the parables, there's so much here and there's, there's a lot that's, that's hard for us to understand at times. But the truth of the matter is that God's, God's word is always able to teach us something. And even when we look at these parables and we're not quite sure what to make of them sometimes, there is always something in there that has direct application for us today. And so this has been a beautiful journey thus far. And last week we took a look, um, actually earlier on in uh, Luke chapter 16, with the parable of the dishonest manager. And what we looked at last week was this concept um, that the master that we love, we're going to devote to and we're going to invest in the things that that master is concerned with. And we also noted that the little things are the best test of character. And what Jesus literally said is that, that if we are faithful in little, that, that tells us a lot about where we are and who we are. And so the question that we asked ourselves last week is, what little thing has God given you? What little thing has God given me? And what naturally should follow from that is once you recognize what that thing is, you ask, how am I doing with it? Am I doing well? And the next question, should he give me more? And that's not just specifically about money. It's not about what little money he's given you. Are you doing well with your little money? And then should he give you more money? It could be a number of different things. It could be the influence that you have. It could, it could be uh, whether or not that he has given you the, an opportunity, whether that's teaching Sunday school or whether that's, that's um, a little thing at work. Are you faithful in that? And whatever you are doing with what God has given you is a very good indication of your character and the likelihood of what you're going to do with great things. What you're doing with minor insignificant things is a very good indication of what you would do with great things. And so this week we continue that idea, yet we're, we're switching it up a little bit because here we have this, this idea of the rich man and Lazarus, and I think most of us have heard this story um, I believe that it's, it's real history, uh, and, and, it's, and it's a real history that's relating to real events, which makes it a little bit interesting, right? We start to look at this and we say, okay, is this insight into what happens after we die? I think that there's part of this that is that. We're not going to focus on that this morning. There's also a sense in which we can start to look at this and say, is this really all about money? And I don't think it is. There's definitely a part of this that has to do with money, but there's a lot bigger picture and a lot bigger story in this. And so the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is the fruit of faith today expressed in generosity will not go unnoticed in death tomorrow. So the fruit of faith today expressed in generosity will not go unnoticed in death tomorrow. And we see this. And one of the big concepts that I think that, that we can glean from this parable is this concept that there is something after death. All right, I believe this is, this is real history. But even if it isn't just this story, I think we all can agree that at death, it's not over. There's life after death. And I'm reminded of the, the, the thought from C.S. Lewis, and I'll put it up on the screen for you, where he says, you've never met a mere mortal. That means every single person you ever interact with, every person you ever meet, every person you ever talk to will live forever. Where will they live forever is another conversation. But whether or not they will live forever is already answered. They will. You will live forever. 
I will live forever. The homeless people that walk by will live forever. Every single person we ever encounter will live forever. And so C.S. Lewis's words, I think, are a good primer for us as we get to uh, start off this morning, that we've never met a mere mortal. And this we see clearly in this parable. But the three stops that we're going to make this morning, we're going to take a look at this contrast, because that's what we see in the beginning, is there's a contrast between the rich and the poor, and there's also a contrast in the life and death. Okay, so those are the two contrasts that we'll see. But then the second place that we'll stop is we'll take this uh, a look at, are we moved or are we unmoved? And then third, where we will finish, I'm going to ask this question and we'll unpack this. Are we ready to move in? So we'll take a look at a contrast. We're going to ask, are we moved or are we unmoved? And third, I'm going to ask the question, are we ready to move in? And so what we see here right away when we start to get into this, verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. I like that word, sumptuously. We don't use that word enough. But then here's the contrast. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So you have this contrast of this rich man living in, in luxury. You see the fine purple. We've always, we always contrast that with um, power or royalty. And his feasting was sumptuous. <laughs> and how often was it? Every day. Here's this man at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, whose desire was to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this is the contrast that we see in life, that there was a certain man who had um, these certain privileges and luxuries. And let's not, let's not miss this. It isn't, it isn't the point that this person had these things. This is not what he's condemned for. What we'll see here in a second it will open our eyes to that. But then the second person had not only a want for food, for his basic needs to be met, but that he was in such discomfort that he even had dogs coming and licking his sores. So it wasn't just his hunger, but his body was ate up. And we don't know the nature of what all that was. But then in verse 22, here comes the contrast in their death. So there's a contrast in their life, but here's the contrast in their death. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried, and in Hades, being in torment. Okay, so you see the difference in the life between these two individuals, but the contrast doesn't end there. The contrast then continues into their death, that one goes to Abraham's bosom or goes to Abraham's side. The other goes to Hades, this place of torment. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, right? He says, have mercy on me. Let him just get a little bit of water on his finger and put it to my tongue. You have this contrast. And what's really interesting is that this is something that we should recognize for us today, that there may be a contrast in our lives, all right, how we live right here, right now, that there, be, there can be a contrast right here in, in, the, in the luxury that we enjoy and in the suffering that we may face, that may be part of our lot. And there isn't one universal experience. It isn't, uh, the scripture here isn't saying, if you want to be godly, what you have to do is be absolutely dead broke, be ate up with diseases and your skin falling off you, and you should let dogs come around you and lick you. 
That's not the contrast. The contrast is not that, hey, here's what morality looks like. Morality looks like absolute, complete suffering, absolutely impoverished. And if you're rich, then you're evil. That's not the contrast that's being made here. But there is. There is room for us to feel a little bit of that. In that, if our hope is in our things, if we are so consumed with our good things, now our good things may testify against us. And we'll unpack that a little bit. But what's interesting, I believe, is when we look at this rich man, um, I think that it, it can be telling us about us as well. As if, Have you ever... Can you relate to this? Have you ever seen progress in your own, let's just say your own finances? I think most of us can relate to this. You know, I can remember as a young boy uh, thinking, you know, man, if I could just make some money, any money, that would be great because then I could buy some things that I would like to buy. And then I can remember my first real paying job. Um, you know, they did not pay hardly anything and it was just such hard work for such little money. And you think, this is an injustice. You know, I'm, I'm 16 and I should be paid well, right? You have this in your heart that this is injustice. How do these people make all this money? And you look at your small little piddly wink paycheck that you've about died for, and you think, How, what more blood can I give? And you feel like, ah. But then you make a little bit more money and you get your first, you know, maybe realish job and you start to say, okay. I can live like by myself, but pretty much it'll be water and the bare essentials for food, and I'm not getting new clothes every year. Those shoes are going to have to last a while, right? And my car is going to be pretty beat up, and let's just, you know what my dad used to call them, we'd have these tires, all right, you know, and you'd rotate your car tires, but then when all the tread is gone, there's a name for it. My dad, I think my dad coined it. They're called Maypops. They may pop at any moment. <laughs> My dad would always say, let's go look at our May Pops. Yep. I think this one will get a few more miles, right? You start, you start running the May Pop brand, all right? That's where you live. And that's okay. But then there's a time where you say, oh, what? You know what? Now I've got a nicer uh, income. And now I can have a nicer car. And I can have a nicer house. And we've, we've seen this in our own life. We, you know, in, in, in Sarah and I's early marriage, it's like, you know, we're praying, we're praying for that paycheck to come because if that check don't come now, we aren't eating. And then you start to say, oh, we've got room. And now we can put wood floors in our house. We've been dreaming about it for 10 years and we just put wood floors in our house. And that is, I'm not talking about our stuff too much, but maybe I am. But when we look at our wood floors, I'm like, oh, because there was a day that that was like, no, not at all. But here's the thing. As you progress in your lifestyle, be warned that we become so comfortable in our increasingly better and better lifestyle that the things that once used to be those things that I would love to have, maybe one day, those things turn into non-negotiables. To then when you say, I can never live that way again. And that's when we start to get into trouble. Because when we look at the good things that we have, and we start to make these temporal things, things that are non-negotiable things, that's when we start to look inwardly. And we miss everybody else. And in an attempt to keep this level of high lifestyle that we've gotten accustomed to, we start to become blind to everyone else around us. That's the danger. 
So it's okay to see progress, I believe, in your wealth. There can be progress in you know, your first house to the house you live in when you're retired. There's nothing saying that there can't be an increase in that. But be careful, because what we see here is this contrast of this person who was living in all the luxury that the world could offer, and then this other person who had nothing and literally wanted the scraps from this person's table. I think that it's a testimony against the rich man that this man was at the gate. He knew him, yet did nothing to ease his suffering and pain. That is a testimony against him in the afterlife. And that's what we see. There's the contrast in the rich and the poor. And so I want you to consider, just like we did last week, what little thing has God given me? How am I doing with it? And should he give me more? Let's continue that thought with this consideration. What has God given me? And why has God given me so much? That's a, that's a good question for you to ask yourself. Good question for me to ask myself. As we've gained more and more money through different jobs increases, it should be a good thing to ask yourself, why do you see it fitting to give me more money, God? Why would you do that? Because if you don't ask that question, then your default setting, I think the default setting is, now I can increase my lifestyle. Now I can increase the things that I enjoy, the things that I love, without asking why God gave me this. Is there a bigger purpose? Because that's the next thing. What is the bigger purpose? And so we have to be cautioned. Do we prefer the good things over eternal things? Let us never prefer the good things in life over the eternal things in life. So let's move on to this next question. Are you moved or unmoved? And I think we've got to take an honest look at our heart. Because what we see here, I believe, is there's an outcast. This man, Lazarus, who's sitting at the gate, um, he says, and at his gate, remember whose gate? The rich man's gate. Was laid the poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. But here's the problem, is that this rich man was not moved he, wasn't, he, was, he was actually unmoved that this person, Lazarus, lived at his gate. So think about this. This isn't, this isn't just some poor homeless person who lived across town. He lived right there. But this rich person, who's not named, was unmoved. There was no compassion. There was no, ah, this is my responsibility. There was none of that. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are we unmoved? We have to take an honest look at our heart. Because I think one of the things that we should look at is, do we love? And this is, this is part of it. When we look at what God has done, we have to recognize that God was moved in love towards us. And for us to be unmoved in love towards others is actually to be unlike God. Our whole process of sanctification is to become more like Christ. Do you know what Christ did? He came and laid down his life for us. He came to be the suffering servant. And what was the motivation? John 3.16, for God so loved that he sent. There's this idea that love moves us. And this is what we have to ask ourselves. Take an honest look at your heart. Do you love? And when I'm looking at the scripture, I, th I see time and time again that it's, that it's our responsibility to be moved and compassionate towards those who are weak and those who are vulnerable. You remember in James it says, true religion is this, 
looking after widows and orphans. Also in James, James 2.17, what does it speak out against? It's just having maybe some good intentions, but actually putting into practice is where the rubber meets the road. Because it's not enough to say that you have faith. James says that. Struggle with it. James 2.17, right? That whole idea, faith without works is dead. Are we saved by works? No. But saving works will produce fruit. Saving works will produce actions. Why? Because we are born again. We are born from above. We have a new heart. God takes the heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh. What does that heart of flesh do? The heart of flesh does the will of God. It's obedient to God. Well, what does God want us to do? To love others as he has loved us. So James says, show me your deeds. And no one wants to preach on that. No one wants to hang out there. But we have to ask, do you have plenty? And can you say that you're living in a way that allows for sacrificial giving, meeting the needs of others? Or can we say in sadness that James is talking about us, calling our faith into account? That's a tough thing to wrestle with because we ought not be comfortable in living in plenty, being unmoved towards those who God would have us to be moved towards. That is what we are supposed to do as the church. If we are so inwardly drawn in that not only are we locked up in our own good things, missing eternal things as individuals, but then as we collectively gather together and say, how can we make ourselves more comfortable as a congregation? We are missing it because what God calls us to is sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving means it costs you something. What should it cost you? It should cost you some comfort. If you can't, if I can't say that we are living in a way that we are giving to the point that it costs us something, we've got to wrestle through that. Because it's, it's, this sermon's not about tithing. This sermon is not about you should give more money to the church. Maybe that's part of it. You do business with God on that. But here's the point. When you get so ate up with your high lifestyle standard that you can't be moved when God moves you, you have a problem. And one of the practical ways that we can fight that is literally practicing sacrificial giving. I think the tithing, as one person said it, it may have been Dave Ramsey, I can't remember, but giving is the tr- the tithing is the training wheels of giving. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's great, you can ride the bike, take the training wheels off. If you're just meeting a bare minimum Let's just say 10%, and I have a lot more to say about what tithing is. I think it's more than 10%, but this isn't for today. And everyone's like, oh, no, wait, what? (laughs) The scripture says that you should give what you've set aside to give cheerfully. Hmm. Is 10% just your minimum? Is that just your training wheels? You struggle with that. That's something I have to struggle with. But here's the point. We have to be ready to be moved when God moves our hearts. And when he moves our hearts and you're unwilling to move because you want to maintain some lifestyle standard, don't let let that be a testimony against you. 
Because God has not given us good things so that we can simply enjoy them in isolation. He has given us good things so that we can love others and meet the needs of those around us. If you do this and store up treasure only for yourself, neglecting the poor man at your gate, that will testify against you. Because here's the contrast. Do you see that flip? That's the flip that we actually see here. Um, But before we move there, I want to ask one question. Who is the outcast? And are we moved with compassion towards them? Because I think the gospel is is that God was moved towards us. And praise God that he was moved to have mercy on us when we were outcasts, when we were sinners, when we were poor, when there was nothing that we brought to the table except our dirtiness and sin and brokenness and death. Like literally we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The love of God moved him to have mercy upon us. And so I ask this, who is the outcast? And are we moved with compassion towards them? Um, I guess this is a morning of telling stories about me and my dad, but I'll tell you a quick story. We have, uh, have this guy in our life, his name is Slim. His real name is, is Joel Blackburn. Um, but he, he's been homeless in this, in this town down in South Houston for a long, long time. Um, he was homeless and doing his thing for probably 15, 20 years before me and my dad came on the scene. Uh, on, on December 24th in the year 2000 is when me and my dad met this guy. We had seen him around. There was this Whataburger in Seabrook, Texas, which is, is right on the coast. It's this beautiful waterfront area, and there's this Whataburger, and we would go to this Whataburger every once in a while, and we'd see this guy over sitting at this one table that, that was Slim's table. Every time you would go to Whataburger, Slim would be at this one table. And he, he suffered with some obsessive compulsive disorders and uh, schizophrenia and all these different things. Okay, So he would sit there and he would talk to himself, do this stuff. And he would stack his creamers up in a particular way every time. You looked at him and he had the creamers stacked up and he had one over here. And then he would do this. And underneath that table, if you went and looked, you would see scribe marks from his thumbs from years and years of doing this. So we would look at Slim and we'd think, what is up with this guy? We had no idea what, what the story was. So on the, uh, December 24th in the year 2000, we had just got fr- home from our Christmas Eve service at church and we went to our beat up trailer house that me and my dad lived in and we're sitting in there and we're thinking, we should go see Slim. We'd never talked to Slim before, we never met Slim. So here's a great idea, you, you gotta meet my dad sometime. My dad said, we ought to dress up as Jesus warriors and go see Slim. I'm 14 at the time, so I'm, all, I'm game. Let's do it, Dad. <laughs> we, get, we get these costumes together, okay? And we had these beat-up cowboy hats, and we put on our motocross goggles, and we put on all this stuff and belts with the ace bandage belts and put Bibles in the ace bandage belts, and we show up to hang out with Slim, and we show up, and we're like, Slim, we're Jesus warriors. We're here to help you. And he's, he's, so he starts talking to us in his crazy jive stuff. He's like, yeah, Ronald McDonald, uh, Captain Kangaroo, and, and, and Cap Jack, you know, all these, he said, all these different sayings. And he'd do this, you know, so we had to learn the language. So we would do this, and we'd say, hey, man, what's the price of rice in China? I, said, I don't know, but don't take a wooden nickel. So we have these, we would talk like that. So he didn't know what to do with us. But he's looking at us, and, and he's like, I'm going to go to Kroger's, because his, his little homeless camp was right in the parking lot of Kroger's, and so he's going to go into Kroger's. And I said, well, can we come with you? And he goes, 
They let me in, but I don't know about you two. (laughs) And this guy has an aviator's cap on 24-7, year-round, and always several layers of clothing and never takes his glasses off. Part of that OCD, schizophrenia, drinks his coffee like this, put the lid back on. And so he's looking at us, I don't know what to do with you guys. That night began a journey for 19 years now, we've been hanging out with Slim and helping Slim. And I could tell you the crazy stuff. Every year, one of the projects we would do is we would build a Slim bike. So we'd get these industrial swim bicycles from the, uh, the plants, these industrial plants around the area, which were heavy duty. And my dad would build them up, and we'd give Slim a bike every year. And then we'd replace it because that was his transportation. My dad still got Slim bikes hanging in, the, in his shop at home. And my dad made these signs, Slim for Mayor. So during the times when people were running for, you know, to be the mayor of C, Brooke, we would go plant around slim for mayor signs and crazy stuff. But I can tell you, during that time, we had hardly anything. There were days that me and my dad would search under the car seat to try to find enough change to get something to eat that day. Just the life we lived. But my dad always made it a point that we would have something to go give Slim. That we would at least have something to go invite Slim to go to Whataburger and we would grab his coffee and a hot apple pie. And that taught me from an early age that even if you don't got anything, you should be looking at other people. And that's one of those things when I look at my dad, I'm like, you taught me that. And we had some crazy stories, some crazy experiences. I wish I had more time to talk about some of the wild stuff. But when I look at that, I look and I say, okay, if I'm looking at what God has given me now, and I have to give an account for this, how am I doing? Am I turning into the rich man who's not even paying attention to Lazarus sleeping at my gate? You have to ask yourself that question. Because I think that's part of it. But let's switch now to the final place that I want us to stop in this concept of are we ready to move in? So I want to ask you a question. Where do you live? Like literally, don't say it, but think. Where do you live? You have an address. I want you to think of your address. Do you live in a decent home? Do you live in a safe place? We all probably live in different different types of homes, and some of us would probably be like, you know what, my home is very humble, not much to see. Others of us would be like, that's a pretty nice place. God's blessed me. There's nothing wrong with wherever you live in that. But think about that. Where do you live? Because here's the thing we've got to look at is we can't put too much trust in your current earthly address. Because every day you're getting ready to do something. Have you ever moved before? Isn't that a process? Some of us are feeling it a little bit more nearer to our hearts than others. Have you ever moved? Well, isn't it a process? You don't do it all in one day, do you? I want you to think about this. You live somewhere today, but you're actually preparing to move. Right now, your whole life is preparation to move. Do you know that you're going to move in somewhere? Every one of us are going to move in somewhere. There will be a day when we finally pass over from life to death, every one of us, and you will go live somewhere. Didn't we start with the first proposition? You've never met a mere mortal. Every one of us are going to live forever. Where will we live forever? 
And here's the contrast. You see the flip, the reversal from life to death. It's in verse 25 um, of, of 16. And it says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in a like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Do you see that? There's a flip. And what had happened was that the rich man had put so much and, and just, just enjoyed that, and he got all of it there. It's as if there was a complete blind side to that there was ever going to be a place where he would live after this. And so he was so wrapped up in this that he missed this. But what we can see is comfort and a challenge. Let's start with the challenge. The challenge is, is that if you're comforted here and that's all you ever have, be warned because this may be it. This may be the best it's going to get for you. If you don't know Christ, this really may be your best life now. A certain preacher may be right if you're lost. This might be your best life now if you're going to hell in the afterlife. So there's the warning. But here's the, here's, here's the encouragement. If you're suffering here, you have nothing, and there's, it just seems to be, what in the world? Here's the encouragement. This isn't it. Just as this poor man, Lazarus, slept at the gate year after year, we don't know. And it says right here, he says that, that you had your good things and Lazarus, like in a manner, bad things. But now, when's the now? Afterlife. He is comforted here and you are in anguish. So the home you live in today will have no use to you. It will be of no use to you when you move into the eternal state. Do you recognize you're not taking that place with you? We just got wood floors. I hope they last a few years, but we're not taking them with us. Everything you ever do to make your house nicer, let me sober you a little bit. It won't last. You won't take it with you. Everything that you ever build, all the money you might make, won't go with you when you move in to the next home that you will live in forever. So let that be a challenge to us because one man moved into paradise but one man moved into hell. And the man in hell says, if you would just send someone, let someone from the dead rise and go talk to my family members, then they would believe. But what does Abram say to him? They didn't listen to Moses. What does that mean? They didn't listen to God's word. And that is the punchline for us. You live somewhere now, but your next address is going to be determined upon the point of have you heard and believed the word of God? Where you live in eternity absolutely depends on whether or not you've heard and believed the word of God. Do you remember that passage in scripture? It says, and you, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, right? You were saved in that. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it in the day of Christ Jesus. So this man says, send a sign, and says, there's no sign that will be sent that would ever take any root if they reject the word of God. So we've got to be about preaching the word of God 
Because not only does our next address depend upon it, everybody else's address depends upon it. We literally can help people prepare to move in when we share the gospel. Let that be the second prong, if you will, in this two-pronged parable. I think the first prong is don't be so caught up in your stuff that you're blinded by the good things God has given you that you miss the eternal things. Don't continue to be comforted greater and greater to which you start to say, this is an absolute thing and my lifestyle and where I live now is non-negotiable and I can never go back down. Don't become that person. Be thankful for what God has given you, but if the day comes where doing something for eternal purposes costs you temporal pleasure, be willing to make that sacrifice. Be willing to say, if God, you take all from me, blessed be your name. That's a good place to be. But the second prong, I believe, and possibly the more important prong, is the whole point of have we heard and believed in God's word because no sign will be enough for those who reject God's word. Those who have a hardened heart who are dead in their sins and trespasses, there's no sign that you will ever give them that will be enough to convince them without the word. You can do anything you want to. You can, you can tell them how great your Christian life is and show them the signs, which is really kind of garbage. Because you know what? Oftentimes the Christian life is a life of suffering. And sometimes though we say, hey, if you become a Christian, look, I used to be poor, but now that I got saved, I'm rich. You can, you can do this too. And we make this big sales pitch. And we forget to say, you know what? You were once an enemy of God and you were a friend and a lover of Satan. Now that you become a child of God, there's an enemy who seeks to destroy you. You forgot about that part, right? We forgot to tell them that part, that when you move from here to here, your enemy just changed. And you literally will have the prince of the air out to destroy you. And one of the ways that he can try to destroy you is to try to convince you that your temporal good things are better than eternal things. Be aware of that. But as we close this morning, I want us to, to truly recognize that there is life after death. So I want to ask you to consider, have you heard and believed the word? So as we close this morning, I want to ask you to stand up and we'll finish out our service this morning. I want you to think about the house you live in. And then a hundred years from now, the house you live in probably won't be inhabited. It probably will be demolished in a hundred years. But even if it's a hundred years from now and it's still around, probably no one's going to be living in it. Think about that. But think about your next home. There's another address that you could be moving into. For those who are believers, you do have another place that you will be moving into. Don't forget that. And if you're not a believer in Christ, if you've not trusted Christ, there is yet another place that you will move into. And a hundred years from now, when the house you live in right now is completely not inhabitable, you will be living somewhere. So this is the importance of the gospel that we hear and believe in the word of God. 
because that absolutely determines whether or not we live in hell or we live in paradise with Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this challenging parable. I pray, God, that you never let us forget that you care for us and you provide for our future, yet at the same time, we are to be faithful in the little things that you've given us, which often means living in generosity towards those in need. Father, I ask that you prepare us to live in eternity in paradise with Christ by trusting in Christ and responding to the work of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and help us recognize Jesus as the true Savior. And through the conviction of sin that leads to repentance, repentance leads to joy as we remember that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And that salvation is all of grace. I pray, Father, you let us respond to that grace today so that we might live in grace and peace forever. I pray that we are burdened with this truth that we will one day move in somewhere. Let that thought guide the believers to hold the good things you've given us with open hands. And let that thought guide the unbelievers to repent, to turn from the power of darkness to the power of God, from death to life by trusting in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you continue to work in our hearts this morning as we meditate on these things and as we continue to worship you. May that be our heart's desire to move in and live with you forever. In Jesus.